C-A-M-P-A-D-U-L-T-H-O-O-D Camp Adulthood Bridging the Millennial Divide One conversation at a time Interviewing guests Strangers and friends We hope that you enjoy your stay at Camp Adulthood. Hello and welcome to Camp Adulthood and the Resident Youth. I'm the Resident Youth, Maddie Ergy. And I'm Camp Adulthood, Shay Keats. And today we are once again joined by an esteemed guest, and that is Jenny Manpa of Forward and Heels. Hi, Jenny. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, we are so excited to have you. Um, Before we jump into our regular segments, would you mind just introducing yourself, telling us where you fall on the millennium spectrum or not on the millennium spectrum, millennial spectrum, um, and a little bit about what you do and what you're going to share with us today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I am 33, so I am at the elder millennial end of the spectrum, Um, and I... I'm a therapist and I'm a women's leadership coach. And basically I founded Forward and Heels um, because I found that all through my 20s, I didn't have the leadership that I was looking for. You know, Lean In was written kind of when I was finishing grad school even. I wasn't even in college and I, I hadn't had that leadership. You know, the 90s were a really interesting time for women and we could do a whole episode <laughs> on that. Um, but sort of the models of feminism were pretty polarizing. Um, and so I wasn't really sure what I wanted my life to look like. I, you know, had always believed in social justice. And so I was always, I knew I wanted to work um, in the helping field and I got a master's in social work, but I I had a lot of problems with the ways in which that field is structured. Um, It's very deficit-based. It's very, you know, you have a problem or you're broken and we're going to fix you, but just get you kind of like to okay functioning. Um, And I felt like there was something missing about, you know, showing people how they can dream bigger and how they can make a life for themselves that isn't just like, you're okay, you can survive, but like you can really thrive. Um, So over the years, I just found that I wasn't finding what I needed in the social work field. Um, I loved the practice of it, but I didn't really find that there was space for these big dreams. Um, And then someone introduced me to the idea of coaching and I could use all the skills that I had built um, in a way that was really about like designing this this big limitless life for yourself. Um, So in 2015, I left uh, full-time social work and I started uh, Forward and Heels. I started with coaching, um, started just kind of honing my skills with women who I sort of just said broadly were millennial women. So like 25 to 45, like it's, you know, um, millennial plus. Yeah, exactly. Um, And uh, just started working with those women and and taking their feedback and really figuring out, uh, listening to what they said they needed and wanted um, and focusing on a lot of the career stuff that we face. Um, You know, what if you don't want to lean in? What if you really like being good at what you do and also leaving at five o'clock for your family? Um, We've sort of, you know, vilified the the idea that you're going to be a wife or a mom or someone who cares for your family primarily. Um, and so just helping people design this life that's really based in their values, not um, in a space that someone else has dictated for you. That's great. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jenny. Excellent. Looking All forward right. to digging into that after our segments. Yeah. Um, Shay, do you have a millennial moment of the week to share with us? Uh, so my millennial moment is so dumb. I feel like I haven't done a millennial moment related to like food or drink in a while. So coming right at you hot today. So my millennial moment today is that uh, my boyfriend brought me a Diet Coke at lunch. And it was like so funny because I was coming 
actually out of an appointment with my therapist and I texted him um, do you want me to pick up some lunch for us? And he was like, yeah. And I went and I got subs. And then he was like, oh, oh, I'll get you. Do you want me to stop by the grocery store and I'll get like something to drink or some chips? And I was like, oh, I'll take some sun chips. And he's like, and do you want a Diet Coke? And I was like, God yes. damn it. And I was like, yes, I do <laughs> want a Diet Coke. So he brought me the Diet Coke. But now I have this thing where I had coffee and Diet Coke and I'm going out to have a glass <laughs> of wine with a friend tonight, but I feel like I have not had enough water to, you know, allow me to have a glass of wine. And I'm just full of caffeine, <laughs> and I'm also very tired. So um, it was just like a poor choice, but it was also so delicious. And I don't drink soda very often at all, and I rarely have Diet Coke, so it was like such a treat. But now it's stressing me out. So that is my like weird, neurotic, millennial moment. Today. I love it. How do we Thank feel about you. the new flavors of Diet Coke? Have either of you guys I can't. had them? You don't like no. them? So growing oh, up, gross. soda was a, like a staple of my household. Yeah. Um, we were so gross. We drank caffeine-free Diet Pepsi by the bottle. Oh, wow. Not even and canned. where did you... Wait, where are you from? <laughs> oh, I'm from Massachusetts. Yeah. Okay. Um, I wouldn't necessarily ascribe that as like a Massachusetts yeah. thing. I don't think anybody else <laughs> is on board. Just setting, yeah. yeah. Um, it just, my mom liked it, and then I was totally addicted to it. Yeah. Um, all the way through, like, my, probably my mid-20s, and then I was just like, I'm spending so much money on this thing, and I truly had to wean myself off the way other people do, like, caffeine or alcohol oh, or yeah. other yeah. things. That's where I'm at. I'm very addicted. We've talked about this on past episodes. Oh, yeah. Maddie has a soda problem. I've definitely, like, cut back a little bit, but, like, I don't do the diet soda. I do, like, the full sugar, like, Coke, and we were joking. <laughs> we, there's this... My coworker, um, Ella, shout out, I don't know if she listens to this, but she sits next to me and then we have this guy, Michael, who's like a contractor, so his contract is actually up at the end of next week, and he's renting this place in Jersey City that has a view of Manhattan, and so he's been like trying to get us to go to his apartment to like have drinks for like months. And every time we're like, oh, it's in New Jersey, it's so far, we're Mm -hmm. not going to do it, and then we were like, oh, he's leaving next week, like, we'll do it, and like his fiance was there with like their dogs, we were like, we'll go. And we told her the story, like, Ella and I will have Cokes, but, like, Michael has been trying to do the keto diet, Mm. and, like, one day he was, like, so stressed out, and he, like, went to CVS, and he bought Kit Kats and a vanilla Coke, and he, like, sat there and ate them all, like, in one sitting, and I was actually on a business trip, so I wasn't in the office, but... Did he throw up? No. I don't know. That's what happens when you're on keto. Ella, like, texted me out of the blue, and she's like, I think Michael's having a mental breakdown, because he... Is drinking a vanilla Coke. <laughs> and so... Vanilla Coke is so gross. We totally blew up his spot and told his fiance about that because they're getting married, so they're, like, doing keto together uh-huh. to lose weight or whatever. And she was like, you told me you never broke keto. And we were like, oh, no, there was a day when Michael fully <laughs> went off the life. wagon. So... Uh, but yeah, you're probably right. He probably felt so sick afterwards because yeah, when you train sure. your body in one way, like I now cannot drink soda. I yeah. get the hiccups. Like my stomach yeah. goes crazy. Yeah. Even just a couple sips. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that was funny. For sure. Um, For sure. Excellent. So Jenny, do you have a millennial moment to share with us? Uh, I'm panicking. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, so I think I was, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking more of like news but, but I, we can, you can, we can, you can save your news for the campfire. Okay, okay good. Okay. Um, I don't know. A millennial moment just meaning like a thing that I was like, oh, I'm such a millennial. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, or even, that's fine. You can pass. <laughs> Other times too, like, and we can cut this out is like 
sometimes guests will muse on like what does it mean to like be a millennial and is there anything that is like truly millennial or like we were talking a little bit about this when we were recording last night of like some things are just like every young person does it but mm-hmm. then there's some things like I was talking to a coworker about like the matcha craze and oh, like God. that's such a thing in New York. <laughs> Shay doesn't sorry. like it. Yeah. I'm sorry if you love matcha, but it makes me want to throw up. <laughs> I do like I matcha, really but it's like really exploded, and mm-hmm. I feel like yeah. that whole like Instagram like at mm-hmm. the matcha place. So I don't know. That just comes to mind. Matcha, matcha. Well, I sorry. think that I have lived here for so long since '03 that I can't differentiate what's yeah. millennial and what's New York. That's true. <laughs> so I'm like, matcha, doesn't well, everybody drink matcha? New York is the center of the universe, as it we all know. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it the is. forefront of culture. Yeah. <laughs> all our listeners in the middle of the country are like, ew. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> or Shay in Portland. Although no, I feel I'm just like... so sad and I cannot wait to be there in less than a month. I know. <laughs> so exciting. So, um, I I, but I feel like I feel like we've talked about this before, but I feel like the New York millennial culture and the Portland millennial culture, although kind of opposites, are, like, weirdly at the cutting edge. Like, I feel like there's yeah. been a lot of, like, millennial stuff to come out of the Pacific Northwest. I don't know. It's, it's, Maybe it's just in thing, my mind. Yeah, it's just, like, where the cool people are, I guess. I don't know. Well, I guess yeah. I will say the convergence of, like, the New York identity and the millennial identity is that I came of age during Sex and the City's original run. Mm-hmm. And I don't even realize how many of my, like, assumptions and mindsets were, like, driven by that. Yeah. Like, of course I have to live in Manhattan. Right. Yeah, I'll live in a shoebox, but I'm not going to an outer borough. Right. Yeah. Same. <laughs> like, no, it's true. Ridiculous. I love that show, unironically. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's great. Ugh, excellent. Um, yeah, anyway, continue. Maddie, what is your millennial moment? Um, I feel like it's just kind of like a continuation. Like, when I, when Jenny walked in, I was, like, a hot mess express because I'm going on vacation tomorrow, and my parents called, like, right when I was setting up, and they were like, we want to talk to you before you go on vacation, before it gets too late. And I was like, uh. Um, and so, like, nothing was set up, and it's just been, like, another day of, with, like, my boss quitting and, like, figuring things out and, like... I had someone else at the company, like, approach me for a job. Like, I was kind of thinking about, like, oh, maybe there's other internal opportunities at my company now that my boss is gone. And so I was, like, thinking about, like, oh, when I come back from vacation, maybe I could explore that as opposed to, like, waiting for this, like, void of leadership now to be filled. And then, like, people started coming up to me today. And I was, like, I was not prepared to have this conversation today. Like, I was already stressed about going on vacation. And then I sent my vacation back up an email basically being, like, I got nothing done this week, so <laughs> here's the baton, dude. Yeah, it was just, yeah. like, horrible, and then I, like, ran out of there. So um, I feel, I don't know, I just feel, like, very discombobulated, and, like, I feel like I have too many things going on. Mm-hmm. Like, both, like, now I'm starting to realize I'm, like, oh, like, my work job, although it's, like, manageable, is, like, too many things, and it's, like, growing because now my boss is leaving, so she's giving me stuff, and... I've been, like, trying to source, like, more interesting projects for myself from, like, other teams, and now it's, like, a lot. Mm -hmm. And then it's also, like, Shay and I both volunteer for our sorority in, like, different capacities. There's that. I'm, like, one of the leaders on the women's network at my company. Like, it's just too much. So I think I'm going to take this vacation to just be, like, what do I actually care about and want to do? And what's, like, the stuff that I'm going to prune from my life? Because it's just, like, too much. Maddie, make sure you watch my Instagram stories because I talk about this today. Just okay, saying. great. Yeah. How to make these so insane. That's so great. Um, so many people take the vacation to like catch up on work or do their side hustle. And mm-hmm. it's really 
admirable for you to, and non-millennial for you yeah. to actually be like, I'm going to go off the grid, think about my values, think about what I want out of life yeah. and come back with a refreshed perspective. Yeah, no, I feel like it's definitely one of my strong suits. And I was talking to my boss who's quitting today about this. I was like, I feel like I'm very good about like setting the boundary, but at the same time, it's like, there's still so much work I could be doing. Mm-hmm. Like, I would love to just have four days to like catch up on emails, like work on the podcast, like do all this stuff. But like, I think having the mental break from all of that will actually provide some clarity so that when I come in next week and I'm not, you know, having this transition, my boss will already be gone. I won't have a vacation that I'm like butting up against. I'll have a little bit more room to breathe and can actually like, I'm not one to say no to things. And I feel like over the last like year and a half, I've just like collected all of these things. And I'm like, I have no free time. Like Mm -hmm. I come home from work, I do the podcast. I feel like this is turning into my own personal therapy (laughs) session. I love it. But it's just been a time the past couple of days. Um, But, you know, it's just like, I've collected all of these things. And this is how I felt at my old job too. It's like, you collect all this work and you never give it up until you quit. Mm -hmm. Like, even if you transition to another role, it's like, there's still things that like stick with you until you like, pull the bandaid off and I want to get away from doing that and like yeah. be more intentional with it and not just wait for like life to happen to me. So we'll see. Um, I also have to say, or just make a note for our listeners and for Jenny. Uh, so Maddie is going to Columbia to visit a dear friend of hers who's in the Peace Corps, which by the way, we should definitely interview Sam at some point. But um, yes, I was telling Jenny, she got attacked by a feral cat yesterday. So no, she's I actually can't. in the hospital, <gasps> but Please she says not, she'll be I, fine. She's going to be fine. Oh, my God. She probably has toxoplasmosis now. Oh, God. very upsetting. Horrible. Um, but here are two messages from people who care about you. My dad says, please tell Maddie to be careful in Colombia. And David says, watch out for Pablo Escobar's hippos, which are apparently on the loose what? and causing oh, much God. rampage. You're talking yeah, about, they, like, physical like, hippo, like a hippopotamus. Yeah, so he <laughs> okay. bought hippopotamus i didn't know if this was like a drug term like mules <laughs> no this is okay. not a drug term the actual animals that he bought for his like private i'm richer than jesus zoo oh well God. they've gotten loose from the zoo and they are not meant to be in Colombia. that's not their native habitat mm-hmm. so it's just it's they're wreaking havoc and we want you to watch out for them that's good. Everyone's well, very. I guess we have to add a third piece of advice: watch out for feral cats. I know. Yes, and feral cats. <laughs> I'm just yeah. Cats everyone, are... my Corey's not super excited that I'm going, and I'm I was excited talking to um, my boss's boss, who was like very German, and he was like, "Where are you going on vacation?" I was like, "Columbia," and he was like, "Is it safe?" And I was like, "I mean, I think it's fine." Like, the State Department says it's a mild threat, so I'm pretty sure it's fine. And he was like are you going with your boyfriend? I was like, no, I'm meeting my friend. And he was like, is it a man? And I was like, no. And he was like, you should find a male companion to go with you. And I was like, thanks. Uh, let me work on that in the next like half hour of work. (laughs) Like totally useless. I have so many opinions on that, Uh but I don't know if now is the time (laughs) to get into them, but I just, I traveled extensively abroad right after nine 11. And the number of people who told me I was going to be like, raped and murdered and killed because I was a woman alone in Europe of all places uh, was astronomical. Mm -hmm. And here I am at neither raped nor murdered. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I say live your best life, girl. Yeah. Yeah. Let me find somebody. That's my millennial moment. Shay, do you have a hot topic for us? 
Yes, I do have a hot topic. Um, so I just, I haven't watched it yet, but I'm really excited for the adaptation of Lindy West's uh, Shrill oh, on yes. Hulu. Ooh. So I read the book a few years ago and I loved it. I thought, I think she's an incredible writer. Um, I think she deals with a lot of nonsense because of her size, but there were two things, or there was one thing in particular in, it was an interview on Bust with her uh, that she was talking about the way they represent abortion in uh, Shrill in the Hulu adaptation. And basically it's looked at as kind of like not a big deal. Like she has to get this abortion and it happens and it's a thing that happens and they devote some time to it, but it doesn't become this um, event that imbues either a positive or negative value on her life. It's just a thing that happens. Um, and I really love that they talk about that. And this is kind of the second show that I've heard of recently or watched that is treating it in that way. So I think that's really interesting. And then of course, um, you know, Lindy's whole body positivity movement is, is really incredible. Um, and she just has so many awesome essays. So of course I can't think of the names of any of them off the top of my head, but if you just Google her or go to her website, she has a lot of free and awesome content. So I would say, check it out. Has it, have either of you watched it yet? No, I, it came out this weekend, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have been like knee deep in being like, if I get fired tomorrow, what do I do? <laughs> um, I'm having a bit of a, a crisis. Um, I watched half of the um, the Inventor, which is the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos mm -hmm. documentary that came out on HBO. Yeah. I'm like mildly obsessed mm -hmm. with her, just not because I like her; right, she's right, right. a horrible person, <laughs> but just like her story. Um, so yeah, I haven't had a chance to explore it yet. I also haven't read the book. It's been recommended to me like over the years to read it. Um, and I've heard it's amazing, and I really like Eddie Bryant as mm -hmm. an actress, so yeah. it's definitely on if, my list. If you're looking for an easy, I know you like memoir, Maddie, if you're looking for an easy read for the plane, download it or see if you can get yeah. it. It's probably a bit back in bookstores. Yeah. Yeah, for the flight, because it's quite good. Yeah, I haven't had a chance either. I've been behind on everything. Like, really yeah. wanna wanna watch The Inventor. Mm -hmm. um, the Adnan Syed story again mm -hmm. is on um, HBO. And sometimes you think like, well, what can they say that hasn't been said? But and there's always more. There's always more. Yeah. You know, you can't just assume like that the, the two information fire festivals documentaries you have to watch yes. both of them. Yes. One is and not enough. <laughs> As yeah, a kid, I, agree. I was a big fan of Agatha Christie books. Mm. I was like a hundred when I was five. Mm -hmm. And I, <laughs> well, I realized, you know, I'm obsessed with true crime. I was um telling Maddie that my entry to podcasts in general, like many people, was serial, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. followed by my favorite murder and then just devoured everything else. Yes. Um and I am always very skeptical because I realized that the way Agatha Christie wrote was that she would always keep pieces of information away from you mm -hmm. because if she shared it, then that would be the clue. And mm -hmm. so now whenever there's a story like, like Adnan Sayed and Heyman Lee, I'm like, yeah, but what about this third piece of information mm -hmm. that we don't know what we don't know yet? And people are like, that's yeah. not how this works. That's very <laughs> yeah. annoying. Like, this is not fictional. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I it's true. That. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. Patty, and what warm log have you brought into our brought yes. brought to well, our toasty campfire today? I was gonna talk about one thing, but then you and I were kind of sidebarring about oh, yes. what I was doing oh, before yes. and I, I think to ask, this is actually uh, really good. Question. Yeah, so as I mentioned before, we're both Kappa advisors. Shay does risk for a chapter and I am like the overall advisory board chairman, like overseeing all of the advisors for all the different positions mm -hmm. um for a different school. 
And so I get a lot of just like random questions from them. And the question that I got today, which I was like, on one hand, which is something that Shay and I have talked about, like these girls, I'm a little bit afraid for their like future because Mm -hmm. like they, I've showed them where to find things on the website and they're like, what even is the website? Wow. And like, just the like lack of knowledge about stuff that we've already gone over is like a little scary. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I know this information is on the website, but anyways, this girl was emailing me and they're trying to fill the house for next year. And they were like, we have this new member and she currently lives in the dorm with an emotional support animal. Mm -hmm. It's a bunny. They told me in the email, which I was like, cute. I would (laughs) love to live with a bunny. And she was like freaked out. And they were like, we want her to be able to live in, but also like, are there allergy concerns with a bunny? Like, who knows? So they mm-hmm. were like, what is the CAPA policy? And it clearly states there's, like, two forms. Basically, the member would send the request form to kind of the house board president, who's an alum, who kind of oversees the house and all the payment structures there, and would kind of just, like, write up a thing of, like, here's my support animal. This is, like, what type of animal it is. Like, you know, making sure it's not, like, something that's not going to fit in the room or mm-hmm. something like that. And then the house board president would either um accept or decline the um the request i guess and there's no real like thing beyond that like that's kind of where the process would end i guess like i guess she could appeal it if they said no i don't think they really will um and then there's like a agreement form that's like the animal has to be on a leash like if it poops somewhere like you have to clean it up Mm -hmm. you're responsible for it and so it's like this very controlled process but Um, Shay and I were kind of sidebarring and we wanted to ask you like from a professional standpoint a like it is kind of a millennial moment hot topic thing you know we obviously see on the news like people trying to take emotional support ducks on a plane Mm -hmm. and kind of like (laughs) making a mockery of something that is legitimate so we wanted to ask you like what were your what are your feelings from a professional counseling and therapy standpoint on emotional support animals Mm -hmm. and how do you think like an organization like a sorority can support members that have a small bunny that lives with them. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. Like it's, it definitely was abused for a while by people who just wanted to bring their small dog on a plane. So they got it labeled as an emotional support animal. So they didn't have to create it. Um, and unfortunately like that became the norm. Um, I sometimes have clients come into session with their emotional, emotional support animals. Um, and sometimes they'll have emailed me or texted me beforehand, but I was in a different session, so I don't get it. Mm -hmm. Um, so they just walk in with a dog and I'm like, Hey, (laughs) um, that said, I don't personally have dog allergies or Mm -hmm. if I do, it's very mild. Um, but that's a very real question, right? So, because on the one hand you are prioritizing someone's mental health, which you absolutely should, especially if they have a diagnosis and they have an animal that, you know, minimizes their anxiety or uh, depression or whatever their diagnosis is that it's related to. But then are you going to create those exact same conditions in someone else who is allergic or maybe Mm -hmm. just doesn't like animals or maybe just doesn't want to live in a house with an animal or doesn't want to walk around a corner and look for, you know, defecation on the floor. Um, So unfortunately, I think this is one of those things where the best answer is just to have a policy that Mm -hmm. is super clear. Nobody's ever, everybody's not going to be satisfied, right? You're always going to have someone who says, you know, that's not fair or whatever, but I think the clarity is what helps um, because then it's it's not 
like you said, like there's a process whereby someone can approve or deny, but that's mm-hmm. kind of the end. That's hard. That ambiguity is hard for anybody, the person with the animal, people mm-hmm. without the animal. Um, so in the absence of a very clear right and wrong, I think the the greatest good for the greatest number of people until something yeah. happens that shifts that, it's not a yeah. great answer, but and I think I this like is how these like policies are designed. A bunny that I assume it lives in like a contained area for the most part yeah like if it was like a mini horse or something i would be like this is a different conversation (laughs) but i feel like a bunny you know it's cute i feel like a lot of people would actually like that like if i was living in a house with a bunny i would be like this is kind of cool um yeah and to my knowledge it's not gonna be like roaming free yeah yeah, i think they live in like a little pen area Mm -hmm. so and to my knowledge most emotional support animals are supposed to be hypoallergenic yeah like they're not shelter adoptions they are bred to be you know, the same way, like, German shepherds are seeing eye dogs. Like, there's something specific in them that can be trained very well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and she also had gone through the whole process, um, like, with the university, too. Like, she's Mm -hmm. already living in a dorm with it, Mm -hmm. and so there's some, like, process that she had to go through and paperwork and stuff, so that's why I was like, I'm fine with it. The other problem, too, not to go on too much of a tangent, but, like, it's also hard, to your point, like, the policy, because they're like houseboard structure like they don't really have like these are all volunteer positions and like the person that was in the role like recently stepped down so Mm -hmm. now it's like we're kind of escalating it up the chain so it does make it difficult and like again i don't know like what her like emotional situation is but i assume if it's something anxiety related like having to go through a bureaucratic system Mm -hmm. like that could be very anxiety producing so i try to do my best but Oh, sorry, Maddie. No, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think there's also a really interesting generational gap, which you might be finding if there's older women on the board that are doing mm-hmm. the approval. Because So my uh, aunt uh, is in her 60s, and she has MS, and she has a service dog. It's a balanced dog. So it's this giant Great Dane. And she's talked about how when she goes out with Giddy and Giddy is wearing her vest, you know, people always pet the dog. And technically you're mm-hmm. not supposed to pet the dog if they're wearing the vest mm-hmm. because they're working. And this is more important for actual working animals versus mm-hmm. emotional support. But um, the interesting thing is she says it's always is the issue with people who are like 30 and above. She says kids, they see that vest and they're like, I know to not interact mm-hmm. with that dog. And I think that's really interesting as you have more Gen Z's coming into the university setting and maybe wanting to bring an animal with them. They have a totally different experience with these support animals than maybe someone who's a little bit older. So yeah. even when I was mm-hmm. in school, like I'm 25 and even like a couple of years ago when I was in school, like there were, you know, not a lot, but like I went to NYU and there were a couple like people that I went to class with who had like little dogs and stuff and they were very clearly like emotional support animals and I like I think everyone was kind of used to it. Like if there was any discord, it happened behind the scenes. And quite honestly, like same thing at like we work. Like we work is a dog friendly, you know, service or not service animal. I think it's just like having animals around alive and things. Mm-hmm. Obviously some people are allergic or have had a bad experience and or just don't like them, but um, for me, I'm definitely very pro having mm-hmm. more animals, the better yeah. from a selfish perspective. <laughs> and I, I just have, oh, most sorry. allergies are touch based, right? Very yeah. few people yeah. are just allergic to like the air. Right. I mean, some people are, but yeah. I think most of the time it's like, if you don't touch the animal, you're probably mm-hmm. fine. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And just to put a bow on this, I have to say my dog, I am definitely her emotional support animal <laughs> and not the other way around. And she gives me great stress because of her many needs. But 
I love it's her. True. So, uh, Jenny, do you have a campfire topic or shall we jump into your interview? Um, I wanted to talk about the college admissions scandal. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we haven't touched <gasps> on that I just watched, yet. are you guys familiar with the Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj on Netflix? I know of it, I haven't watched yeah, it. Yeah, it's a, he's a Daily Show correspondent, it's a very Daily oh, Show-esque yeah. show, but he did, like, 30 minute, their 30 minute episodes about a topic, you know, similar to, like, a John Oliver Daily Show type thing, and he did one on the college admissions scandal that I just watched the other day, so, very excited to talk about this. Yes. Um... I mean, I have so many thoughts. Yeah. So the like bigger picture that I was thinking about was related to sort of this millennial experience was I went to college in 03 Mm -hmm. and I I also went to NYU and I really used it as a time to live in New York City. Yeah. I went to Broadway shows. Mm -hmm. I slept late. I used a fake ID to get into bars. (laughs) You know, I really did the college part of it. And even people who are five to ten years younger than I am, they had such a different experience. And maybe you can speak to this. Yeah. Like, it was about like the the accolades and the making sure you checked all the boxes and yeah. the making the sure you got a good job. Yeah, yeah, a good job after mm-hmm. college. And so to backwards plan from the job, you got the internships and you chose a major that maybe you weren't that interested in, but was going to get you a good job. And you know, I graduated in 07, pre recession, and with just like the the very elder millennial mindset of like it'll all work out because I worked hard. And this will be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I almost feel like this next generation, I guess we're calling them Z. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just thinking about the kids who got who, who got admitted to these colleges right. through no you know, accolades of their <laughs> yeah. own. Um, don't even really seem very interested in it. It's almost like a direct reaction to the over, oh my God, I have to design this life that's going to get me, you know, safety and I'm going to be, you know, recession proof the next time it happens, like someone who graduated 08 or after. And then it's almost like there was this backlash of people who are graduating now or in college now where they're like, I don't even really want to go to college. I just want to be an influencer. (laughs) And we've really rewarded that as a society financially and, and with attention and validation. Um, But it was interesting that, you know, this isn't a new story of parents who, you know, want better for their kids than they had. So they try to rig the system if they have the means to do so. I mean, I'm just specifically thinking of like the Lori Loughlin experience where the Jade, is that her name? Yeah, the, the younger one yeah. who's an Instagram influencer yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. She, I mean, she was very open about being like, you know, my parents didn't go to college, or, or I guess the dad did, but he kind of like faked his way through yeah. it. And she was like, I don't really want to be here. I, I don't know how much school I'm going to do, you know, but they really wanted this for me. Um, but the difference is that we're in an age where there's no secrecy, there's no privacy. You say that and it's recorded yeah. <laughs> and broadcast for posterity because right. you've chosen to be on a platform that millions of people can see um, and that you're rewarded for simply existing and sort of catering to this external validation of likes and and retweets and reposts and all those things, um, which was just like a very, a very big 180 from the two previous micro generations, I think. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I even see it like I graduated in 2016. I have a cousin who's at NYU right now. She's graduating set to like next uh, May, I guess. So she has like a little over a year left. Um, but I went to dinner with her on her birthday and she was like, I really want to graduate early. And mind you, I lived with Shay during my last year of college. How much time would you say I was in class during that last bit? Um, not so much that I was going <laughs> to call your mom, but definitely enough that I was mildly concerned. Like I had like one 
I was definitely, I had like six credits left, so I was taking like two classes, and it was like, it got to the point where I wasn't like depressed or anything. It wasn't like that, but it was like, I would have a class at two, and I was like, that's too early. <laughs> yep. Like, <laughs> four, 4 p.m. and above is where I live. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it was the best time. Like, I look at it now, and I was like, I had so much free time. I, I read so many books. I watched so much TV. I like would just go to the coffee shop and just sit there, just drink coffee. Who does that, mm-hmm. you know? As an adult, when have you ever just went somewhere and just, like, existed? I used to do that for, like, six months, and I told her, I was like, you should do it. Like, your parents are going to pay for it. It's not like, I don't understand if there was a financial component or something, but I was like, I know your parents are going to pay for it, so, like, <laughs> just stay there and do that. Like, it's worth it. And she was like, no, I really want to, like, be more independent and, like, get a job and, like, do all this stuff. And so dumb. I was like, <laughs> I was like, like, oh my God. And I kind of, I I remember feeling that way too. I was like, you know, you want to get out from under your parents' thumb a little bit and kind of prove and like, it it definitely is like both are hard in a certain sense, but like doing work for work versus doing work for school is a little bit different. So I get the push to do that. But to your point, I was like, I, I felt like, like it was just different from my college experience and I didn't go there that long ago. Um, and I do think it's really interesting, like even, um, you know, talking to like my boyfriend was in the military and so there he didn't go to college. He's in college now. Um, but talking to him like about his friends and some of them do feel that way. They're like, you know, they have the GI bill, so they're not paying for it. But a lot of his, um, you know, friends and things like that from high school are like, why would I spend all that money? Like it goes into the student loan issue as well. Like, why would I spend that money for not that much return? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think Shane, I have talked about this on the podcast that like college is more, it's, it's the social experience. Mm -hmm. It's especially if you're doing liberal arts or something like that. It's like, it teaches you how to think and everyone should go through that to a certain extent. It's not necessarily about the major and about like Mm -hmm. getting the job but then the flip side, I think that's, like, one extreme. And then the other side is, like, Jade Laughlin being, like, it doesn't matter at all. I don't need it. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, there's a happy medium between, like, it's not necessarily 100% job training, but it's also not useless. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's kind of maybe where this current generation is getting lost a little bit. Yeah. And I think there are a couple things that are problematic. And there are two things, you know, that I say. And generally, when I'm doing career coaching, I get these kids They've already made the choice about college. But first of all, I don't think, you know, within reason, it really matters where you go to college. It's more about where you're going to go that you are going to be successful. And mm-hmm. I think you don't have significantly less opportunities, whether you go to Harvard or Penn State, for example. You know, it's yeah, it depends on getting... what you use with it, who you're mm-hmm. meeting, yeah, stuff like that. Exactly. Um, and I, Maddie has heard me talk about why your college major doesn't matter and it's a load of crap <laughs> and it's more about, you know, just getting the degree and then figuring out what you want from it. But I think what's really problematic is you now find these high school kids. So this like moment of freaking out is happening earlier mm-hmm. and earlier and earlier. Mm-hmm. And then you see it. I, I don't see it so much outside of New York, but you know, in New York, you get this, you know, well, are they going to go to the right middle school so yeah. that they get into the right university? And it is insane. Like, <laughs> if your kid shows up and does the bare minimum of homework, they should be able to get into college. Yeah. And, you know, once they're in college, again, show up, hand your papers in on time, 
you should graduate. You should have this foundation. And then everything else is just icing that you can add on top of that. And again, this is coming from like the most type A person ever. (laughs) But um, it's funny. I was talking, Maddie, with my with Jackson, a former guest of the pod who Mm -hmm. is 16 years old. And he was saying he has this research project. And he's like, well, if I only get three sources, I get a B. So I'm only going to do three sources. (laughs) And I'm like, well, why wouldn't you just do five sources and get an A? I don't (laughs) understand. So, um, but clearly he's an outlier. But I feel like so many of these kids are freaking out earlier and earlier. And what is really the advantage of going to an Ivy League school? And again, I realize I'm saying that from a place of extreme privilege. I'm also an NYU grad for graduate school and I went to a, you know, a highly ranked liberal arts school. So maybe this is my privilege talking, but at the end of the day, I don't feel like while these degrees have been meaningful in my personal development, they haven't necessarily, I don't feel like I have had, you know, extreme opportunities because of this pedigree is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I think about the, it's all about the parents too. Like, I think some of it is self-propagated by the kids, mm-hmm. but you know, it's the, the helicopter parenting and it's the, what's the best insurance policy. And you end up with this college admission scandal where instead of, you know, I was looking on Twitter and someone had tweeted, they were like, if you were going to invest 500 grand, like, why didn't you get your kid the best tutor, send them to a summer camp mm-hmm. that would prepare them? Like, you know, there's so much you could have done with that money that would have set them up for success and would have made them a better student. And instead you took that same money and put it towards this like bribery thing. And now it's like, it's obviously unraveling. Um, so I think you obviously have to look at the parents. Um, and that's like the biggest sort of sticking point. And it's like, I think... I've even seen it, like, I grew up in a pretty, like, upper middle class suburb, and now that I'm on the other side, like, I'm looking at people's resumes, and it's like, your job experience matters so much more, even a couple years out of college. Mm -hmm. Like, we're hiring for, like, a new analyst on my team, someone with one to three years of experience, and it's like, we've seen resumes all the way from the Ivies all the way to someone who has an associate's at community college, and, like, we're, you know, maybe I just work at a very egalitarian place, but we're looking at you know, your education typically is at the bottom of your resume unless you just graduated because the colleges want them at the top, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the job experience man, matters that much more. And um, to your point, Shay, like the rest is just icing. And I think I've even thought about this myself for grad school. Like I went to an, I got a business degree at NYU. So if I were to go back and get my MBA, it wouldn't necessarily be for the skills. Like I do want to you know, have better finance and accounting skills, but I already have that foundation. And quite frankly, the education that I got at NYU is very similar to the NYU MBA program. Um, So if I were to go to get my MBA, I would want to push to go to that top tier school for the networking opportunities specifically. I probably wouldn't pay to go and do like what my dad did. My dad has his MBA from a city school in Detroit, and it was great for him, but he also was pivoting from an engineering degree and really wanted those finance skills and those accounting skills with his MBA. I don't really need that. So for me to go to like a Harvard or a Wharton to get my MBA would mean more than going to a Penn State, to use your example, not to disparage Penn State at all. We love um, Penn State. Mm-hmm. But for, on the undergraduate level, <laughs> I think I, I saw it with parents all the time. They're like, well, if my kid doesn't get into a top 20 program and they end up going to a state school, it's horrible. It's like, it's not. 
like your kid is going to end up interviewing against those kids from the Ivy League schools and it all like washes out in the end. And if your kid's terrible at interviewing, they're never going to get a job anyway. So, well, let me tell you, going to a private top 10 social work program really yielded dividends for me. Did it? No! (laughs) (laughs) I would have had the exact same job opportunities, skill set, everything if I had gone to a school, a city school, a Mm -hmm. school that I chose the specialty. But I was just like, well... I want to go to this school and this has a great name and the end. I I don't make any more money. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, the other thing about grad school that I wish I had known at the time was I actually did leave New York briefly to go to grad school in Boston and I went to Boston College and I Mm -hmm. loved my program, but I fell backwards into it. I moved to Boston, then decided to start grad school. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, I already live here. I can only go to one of three programs Mm -hmm. that has a part-time program. Like, I I didn't think about what it would offer me, what the value was, what kind of program. And I got really lucky because my program had what was called a macro track. So there's macro versus clinical. So I got to look at, like, program development and, like, financial resource development, things that they don't really teach you in social work school. They teach you how to be a therapist. They Mm -hmm. don't teach you how to run a program or a business. Um, but yeah. what I wish I had realized was you should go to grad school for something like that in the the city you want or the state, at least, you want mm-hmm. to work in. So I was in Boston knowing I was coming back to New yeah. York and nobody, I had internships, I had great connections, I had people who knew what my skill set was yeah. and they didn't live in New York. So I moved back right. with what I thought was a very valuable degree from a a prestigious school and nobody, it didn't mean anything to anybody because nobody knew me here. Mm -hmm. And so getting a job was actually tougher than I anticipated. And it took me a little bit longer than I anticipated because I didn't have someone to say, oh, well, you did your internship here. So we know what you can do. Or, oh, we heard from this other person that that vouch for you. I mean, it obviously depends on the program, but I think grad school in particular, unless you're, if you're doing like a, a pivot based on, skills like something where it's like maybe you got a liberal arts degree and now you want to pivot over to engineering that's going to require some like very specific skills and you want to actually like go to class and learn these things and but I feel like a lot of it is at that point it's like you have more of an idea of what you do want to do for job training compared to undergrad and I feel like people kind of get those confused they're like undergrad has to be the the concrete job training but Mm -hmm. it's like no, undergrad can kind of be where you learn how to learn and learn how to be an adult and have a little bit of fun. And then you can think about grad school or be in the workforce for a little bit of time and then go for that job training. But to your point, I think people kind of downplay the networking aspect and they're like, well, I just want to go to the top program. But it's like, are people maybe outside of your small specific field going to recognize that that was the top program? Mm -hmm. And you're going to, potentially be starting over in a new city. So I, th- I think that's a really good point that you made. Awesome. All right. Well, in the interest of time, shall we pivot into yes. our interview? Yes, Great. Um, we shall. So Jenny, I feel like I have so many questions. <laughs> um, I personally am most interested because I loved looking at your website that you do this combination of more traditional therapy and coaching because I can't tell you how many people that I've worked with or have personal relationships with. And I'm like, why didn't you go to therapy? And they're like, I don't need therapy. I'm not sick. So I love the way that you 
have both of those skills and offer both of those. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what that looks like for you as a practitioner and what that looks like for your clients. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so like I said, I left, um, in 2015 full-time social work because I just felt like it was so deficit based. Um, again, kind of fell backwards, Mm -hmm. um, into coaching at the recommendation of a friend, uh, did a little bit of the, the type a panic where I was like, (laughs) well, I can't just not be working. So I enrolled in a coaching certification program at NYU because I just bleed violet forever. (laughs) And what I will say is that it didn't necessarily teach me any skills I didn't have as a therapist, but what it taught me was mindsets. And I am eternally grateful because A, it taught me how to be a business owner. Uh, Nobody teaches you in social work school how to have a practice. Mm -hmm. They teach you Mm -hmm. how to work for a clinic. Um, And that has its place and is very important, but not everybody wants to do that for their entire career. Um, Coaching taught me that, like I was saying before, you know, it's not just getting you from crisis to stability, but it's getting you to, okay, things might be good. You might be going to a coach or even a therapist because things are are pretty good, but there's something Mm -hmm. else you want out of your life. Maybe you don't even know how to say what it is. You just know, and, and, you know, speaking to the sort of type A millennial that a lot of us are and know, you know, I've done all the things, right? I've checked all the boxes. I got the degrees and I got the jobs and I did the internship and there's still something missing. But if it's not those things, then what is it? Mm -hmm. And then it, it creates this crisis in you where you're like, if everything I've been working for isn't it that's going to make me quote unquote happy, then what will make me happy? And that can really make you spiral. I've been there. I didn't know that I had anxiety because I have a very sanctioned form of anxiety Mm -hmm. called perfectionism. (laughs) And so it was very well regarded by other people. And it took me years to realize that that striving for the next thing was really a way of never being satisfied with what I was choosing in life because I wasn't coming from my own set of values. I was external or I was internalizing all these external forces of you should do this and this is what will make you successful and this is what your purpose should be. And it really took me until right around when I turned 30 and am I allowed to swear on this? Yes, definitely. So I really, I call it my like red lipstick and zero fucks given. And I started like leaning into, I mean, literally red lipstick, mm-hmm. like, you know, Mac Russian red forever. <laughs> um, but like I wore red lipstick, like, uh, like uh, an imposter. I wore it like a costume. And then I mm-hmm. finally just was like, actually, I love this and I'm going to like stand tall. And it changed my whole perspective overall. You know, turning 30, I also think, is a milestone for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, If you believe in astrology, it's around the time that Saturn returns to its position of the year you were born, right around, like, 27 to 39, some people believe. So it, like, returns you back to almost this, like, rebirth for a lot of people. So, uh, you know, a lot was happening. Like I said, I was leaving that job, and I was so burned out. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I need something different, but I, I, I still need to help other people. Um, and so, yeah, so I found this and I really was able to kind of dovetail those two skill sets, um, of this, this big picture, you know, dreaming with the real practical stuff. Um, and so my particular sort of methodology is a combination of, um, psychodynamic and cognitive behavioral therapy. So psychodynamic is, um, kind of what you think of as Freudian, although we've moved away from Mm -hmm. that and it's more childhood parental relationships. What are these patterns that you've started engaging in very young that became automatic that you don't even think about now, um, and have just become ingrained. And then the cognitive behavioral therapy part of that is much more action oriented. So cognition, behavioral, what are your thought processes, but then how do you change them? Um, And so a lot of it is rewriting some of those stories we've made automatic 
and going back and addressing them in a really purposeful, meaningful way. Um, so for example, it's not that you never go to happy hour on a Wednesday, that that's bad. There are no decisions that are bad, but it's, am I going to happy hour because I really want to catch up with this friend and I'd love to have a cold, refreshing glass of wine? Or am I going because in my family, when you had a bad day, you drank and I don't really want to spend time with this friend because they actually make me feel more anxious, but otherwise I have to be alone. And just even asking yourself those questions changes it from automatic to a purposeful choice. Mm -hmm. Still go to happy hour if you want to go, but make it a choice. Don't make it one of those millions of decisions that gets taken out of our hands because we are biologically programmed to be make everything automatic that we can. Because if we had to spend all this time and energy being like, open eyelids, lift head, we'd <laughs> never leave the house. And yeah. so our brains are like, great, got it. We know how to do that. Don't think about it ever again. And we don't realize how much we do that with some of the negative stuff too. That's awesome. I love that. I know you do obviously both coaching and therapy, but if someone is listening to this and they're like, I feel like I want to make a change, but I don't know which way to go. Like, what do you tell your clients when someone, you know, obviously we can say that they should do both, but if someone is maybe of limited resources or time, if they're like, should I do coaching or therapy? What would you tell them? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think, and I think it doesn't always have to be an either or. It can be like what's good right now versus mm -hmm. long term. Um, but for me, coaching is really a time bound experience. Um, I would say largely the biggest difference is that coaching is more like, um, you know, I'm in a job that doesn't make me happy. I don't actually know what would make me happy, but I know it's not this. So it's like, okay, your immediate priority is pivoting your career either within your field or maybe to something totally different. So before we jump into those action items, let's like drill down on your priorities and mm -hmm. your values and let's talk about how you like to spend your time and your days. If what you're coming for is primarily relationship-based, um, I'm in these patterns that I um, I don't feel like are good for me or I'm not really sure, then that to me would say more therapy. Mm -hmm. um, I would say the easiest way to distinguish is if what you feel like you are looking for is um, end result focus focused, like a uh, new job, you know, new um, career overall, um, new responsibilities, like that's more coaching. Um, I find that the danger that I see with people um, in, in sort of overlapping these two fields is if you're not actually licensed as a therapist and you call yourself a coach but you veer and bleed mm. into therapy, you're, you're an unlicensed practitioner yeah. and that's really dangerous. People think that it's easy because it's mental and it's invisible mm -hmm. and it's emotional and we all have thoughts and emotions, so we all must be able to do that. So I caution people in seeking coaching for emotional things um, with someone who is not necessarily licensed in that mm -hmm. field, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a good that point to make. I love that because I've had so many moments with my coaching clients where I'll just say, I'm going to stop you right there. I'm going to give you the link to the, <laughs> what is it? The American psychology association website. You're going to go on there. You're going to put in your zip code. I'll help you find somebody. We'll talk it through, but I am not qualified to answer, to help you with this problem. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something, and it's hard because especially when you're talking business, which is what I do with someone, it's all wrapped up together and then you have to be able to pull those strings out which I think is really really interesting so I may be referring some people to you actually please do so. <laughs> yeah are but, you based yeah. in New York or do you do virtual I am based in New York yes primarily um can definitely do virtual um and that would be something that we would talk about mm -hmm. um but I yeah I myself am based in New York cool cool and 
how do you, I, I'm so interested in virtual therapy because I feel like there are so many therapists who don't do it and mm-hmm. who are very against the whole idea of either meeting with someone over the phone or via video or all those apps that are, what are they called? I don't like even talk know. Space. Like talk space. Yeah. Talk space. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. So I think this makes me like, very elder millennial. Like Mm -hmm. I don't like the digital version of it. I would much prefer to meet you in person. And the thing is sometimes with my clients, like they're homesick or they like can't get out of work and then we do it remotely, but that's Mm -hmm. because we have an established relationship. Um, I have done coaching a hundred percent by phone or Skype. And because coaching is a less emotionally fraught relationship, it's not as complicated. Um, but I personally, I just want to see you. I want to see your body language. I want you to see me. I want you to feel that I'm in a room present with you, Mm -hmm. that I'm not secretly on my phone or doing something else. Um, because I think for many of us who are used to having like meetings via Slack or whatever, like we're always doing something else. It's always about maximizing our time and for someone to feel like they really have your undivided attention and focus, I think is much easier in a room. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, I agree. And I think, I just love hearing you say that because I think there are so many people who don't understand why you need to actually have that face-to-face relationship with your therapist. And they're like, well, it's so inconvenient for me to go uptown on Thursdays at two o'clock in the afternoon. Well, yeah, it is inconvenient, but there's a reason why that inconvenience is important Mm -hmm. to the work that you're you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, I always wonder with both coaching, but definitely more like therapy, if this is your full-time job so presumably you know on a packed day you're meeting with clients one after another like how do you not let their like deeply emotional stories affect you to the point that you're just like a wreck like I think about myself it's like if I have one friend that calls me and they're like telling me this horribly fraught story it like it, it sits with you like how do you kind of like take care of yourself as a therapist Mm -hmm. to be able to do that day in and day out? It's such an important question. um, And I have sort of two thoughts about that. Um, One is that it actually relates back to our college conversation, which is that I chose a field that I already like and do in my spare time. Mm -hmm. So for me, Mm -hmm. I feel invigorated and energized when that friend calls me and Mm -hmm. vents for an hour. Like that is just my my strength and skill set. So I feel like we are and I also there's an element to it where I know I'm helping them so I don't feel a sense of accomplishment there and yeah so I don't feel like we hung up and I told them nothing or even made it worse um I know that the person walks away and it, you know the thing about therapy is that it it requires you to uncover a lot of stuff you don't want to or that you've trained yourself not to because that's how you survive so a lot of times people leave my office feeling worse than when they walked in and sometimes we joke that they're like do you get paid extra when you make me cry (laughs) and as much as it it feels uncomfortable in one sense especially if you're someone who has been very you know strong boundaries and driven and ambitious and like kept that those those walls up because you have to move forward um it can feel worse before it feels better but I know that big picture, we're moving to a place that's better. Um, And so I know because I've been doing this for so long and I've worked in so many different types of circumstances that the, it might be, you know, sort of a a hockey stick. Like it might go down before it goes up, but it's going to go up Mm -hmm. if we keep doing the work. Um, And the other response to that is self-care. And I mean, we could do a whole podcast on that, but I think the biggest misconception about self-care is that it's an indulgence. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, bubble baths and wine. (laughs) Self-care 
self-care is the work you have to do to be able to do the work you have to do. And it is not about indulgence. It's not about like treat yourself. It is about valuing yourself as much as you value your clients or your friends or your family or your relationships, putting yourself on that list, not at the bottom, not, you know, not even on it, but mm-hmm. on that list near the top because you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself first. And yeah. it's not selfish and it's not self-indulgent. It is truly caring for yourself as a human being. And as a therapist, how can I sit there and say to you, well, you need to ask for a raise or you need to, you know, set these boundaries with your your parent or your spouse or whatever when then I can't do that for myself. Mm-hmm. Like that'd be like going to, a, you know, a disheveled like hairdresser like (laughs) why am I gonna let you touch my hair (laughs) yeah it's true I always wonder too we asked we had a dating coach on um we Lily we love her we've had her on twice and I think one of the questions in one of the episodes came up like she's a dating coach and like if she had a client get married and they invited her to her wedding would she go I'm always curious about like those boundaries and I know Shay you've dealt with those as well and especially Mm -hmm. If you're in this field where, like you said, you know, if that friend calls you, you get invigorated by it. But obviously, at a certain point, this is your job. You get paid to do this. So, like, it's both a boundary for, like, your own mental health and sanity and probably a safety thing, too, to, like, not let your clients know where you live and stuff like that. But also to make sure that you're not getting advantage, taking advantage of and doing free work. So how do you kind of balance those things? Yeah, that's such an important point that you bring up. Um, So in terms of the boundaries, social work has a code of ethics, uh, Mm -hmm. like any doctor, that we are bound by. Um, So the it's the wedding question. um, And this is where like therapy and coaching really diverge. Yeah, um, because you can really set your own boundaries as a coach, you can you can really say how close or not close you want to get with someone. Um, In therapy, you are obligated to keep those boundaries up. Mm -hmm. And in fact, like, you know, you have to take multiple tiers of exams to be licensed. Mm-hmm. And there, these are all the questions. The right. questions are not about recall. They're about like, what do you do in this situation? And largely it's about um, finding out what it would mean to that person for you to go, but pretty much saying no in yeah. a way that makes them feel supported and validated, but like clear boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um it's actually, it's like, again, you can be like sanctioned for not maintaining those boundaries. So yeah. it's very important in the code of ethics. Yeah. Yeah. But with friends, you know, it's a great question because I think I'm also such an extrovert that I recharge by being around other Mm -hmm. people. Um, And it's taken me many years to differentiate between friendships that I am essentially giving free therapy to um, and friendships that are reciprocal. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, my friends call me and want to talk about like a breakup or whatever, that I will be there at the drop of a hat for the ones that I know that would do the same for me. They might not have the same skill set in their responses of being like a therapist back to me. That's not what I'm looking for from them. I can go to a therapist for that. I just want a friend to listen. But when I find that I'm giving and giving and giving and I'm not actually getting anything back from that other person, that's when I reevaluate what's happening here. Yeah. I think those are all really good points. So, you know, I think, again, on the line of self-care, I'm going to ask you a very personal question. Sure. Do you see your own therapist? <laughs> I have at times. Um, yeah. You know, it ebbs and flows. And I think that's also mm-hmm. something that people need to know is okay, that mm-hmm. you don't need to commit to going to a therapist and then do it for the rest of your life. You mm-hmm. can go when things feel like they need to be addressed, and then you can pause, and then you can come back. You can change yeah. therapists. You can see them weekly, biweekly, monthly. You know, you, it's really, you, there isn't, a, like, a way to do therapy right. 
point. It's however works for you and you have to find the right therapist. And I really do believe that finding the right therapist is like dating. Mm -hmm. When you're young, you're like, oh, I hope they like me. And you don't (laughs) even think about what you would need from this relationship. You're just like, you know, so then so many people come into my office and they're putting the best version of themselves forward. And I'm like, I see you. They're like (laughs) in a job interview or something. And, And then I'll say something like, you know, I noticed that when you talk about this topic, you, um, you know, you physically pull mm-hmm. your hair in front of your face. And I, I noticed that you almost use that as a shield or a barrier. Um, and then, you know, so something like that, that's just a neutral observation can sometimes mm-hmm. help them realize a lot of times you don't even realize yeah. it. You're just, we're constantly like being interviewed by everybody in our lives, right? We don't mm-hmm. want the person at Starbucks to think we're a jerk. So, mm-hmm. um, and then that helps break down those barriers, but Um, yeah, definitely. Um, I also, you know, because I went to social work school, I have a lot of friends who are therapists, Mm -hmm. so I kind of have the free help, uh, everywhere that, you know, in my social circle. So we kind of, uh, symbiotically, like synergistically (laughs) use each other for free therapy. So it's Mm -hmm. still an equal boundary relationship. That's wonderful. Yeah. So what do you recommend then when someone is shopping for a therapist, particularly if they feel limited by their budget or their insurance? Um, how do you recommend they evaluate, you know, their potential candidates? Yeah. So, you know, this is a place where I really think that people need to think about it as an investment, not a cost. Um, and that it is more important to find a therapist that is a good fit for you than one that necessarily takes your insurance. Um, I've worked at private practices or clinics um, before I started my own that, you know, someone would be coming and they'd be on insurance, but then their job would change or their Mm -hmm. insurance provider would change and they would have to be faced with that decision. And they would say like, it's not a question. Like you're my therapist. I'm going to keep seeing you, whatever it takes. Um, And again, part of our industry is the ethical expectation that we will do our best to meet clients where they are. So we can have things like sliding scales. Mm -hmm. Um, So I say it's more important to find the person and the modality. So some people don't want cognitive behavioral therapy, right? It's a little bit too to homework oriented for them. Mm-hmm. Other people love that. Other people want to do, you know, they really do want to lie down on a couch. People still do that. Other people mm-hmm. don't want that. So it's really so much more about finding the fit and then figuring out the finances. And a good therapist will work with you to say, you know, let's actually maybe look at some places in your life where you can free up some money. You know, maybe you're spending because you're unhappy in a certain way that we could actually alleviate here. And maybe you wouldn't feel the need to, you know, drink so much that you can't remember and that would be a cost that we could maybe address or you know just things like that Mm -hmm. where it doesn't always have to be about just like dollars and cents but really the impact it'll have on your life yeah yeah and I think also recognizing that you'll need different things from your therapist or different kinds of therapy at different times in your life and I remember I was seeing a therapist in New York and I saw her off and on for like five years and the first time I went she was so nice just sat there and listened and never told me to do anything and then the second time I went back she had so many opinions and I was like girl when did you get so many opinions and it was it was showed to her skills that that was at first I didn't need that and it would not have been a good fit had she had a lot of opinions for me but then going back the second time it was a very different and I was there to solve a very specific problem so that was really useful um, and I just you know, I jump in with my personal experience just because I've had friends be like, oh, well, you just got lucky because you found her. And I was like, well, I did get lucky to a certain extent, but I also acknowledge that, you know, I was open to what this other person had to bring to the table, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I found that like 
when pe- people that like give the pushback and they don't want to go, like even if you made the appointment for them and put them in the room, they're not going to be receptive to it. Mm-hmm. Like people have to want to go on their own. Yeah. Like I've definitely had friends and family like that where I'm like, I can co- so clearly see like you are struggling, you need help. And it's like, they'll be like, no, 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 it's fine. And then like something will happen. They'll like hit rock bottom, maybe not something that dramatic. And then they'll be like, oh, I went and now it was, it was a good experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can easily get frustrated by that, but it's like at the end of the day, it's the same, I think, with, like, 12-step programs and stuff. They don't work unless the person's receptive to it. Right, right. One of the, like, mantras of social work school was never do more work than the client. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's funny because most clinics, most, um, like, social service net programs are, like, force-based. They're like, you have to do this. Or, like, you know, I worked in juvenile justice. Like, mm-hmm. the alternative choice was you can do this program or you can go to jail for, like, a 15-year-old. Yeah. So, of course, they're going to choose this. Right. Um, so, it's like, that's kind of back what I was saying before about this program being very deficit, I mean, not program, this field being very deficit-based in its perspective. The idea that, like, you're going to say people need to be receptive to change or just the willingness to examine things, yeah. right? They don't need to walk in ready to make all kinds of overhauls in their life, but then create programs where people are mandated to do things or school social work. Mm-hmm. Kids are like dictated that they have to do it, you know, X amount of hours all year long. Doesn't matter if, you know, you're hitting any goals or whatever. I have a lot yeah. of thoughts about a lot yeah. of ways in which this is done, but, but yeah, exactly. And you, I really, I encourage people not to look at it, um, say, like, people in your life saying, like, oh, you got lucky. Like, I really encourage people, like, if you went on one date, you went on your first date ever, and you didn't like the person, you wouldn't decide that dating wasn't for you ever again. I mean, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you would go on dates with other people. You would find different criteria. You would say, maybe I want someone who's older or younger or in this job. It's the exact same thing. Like, go to someone, you're like, eh, they're not really for me. They try to make me visualize too many things and I just don't like doing that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so maybe Mm -hmm. let's talk to someone who does more activity-based, more homework-based. Like, maybe I'm type A and I really want that gold star every time I come in. Yeah. I think that's interesting, too. And I'm not as educated on it, but you obviously have a social work background, but there are therapists who have maybe a clinical psychology background Mm -hmm. or something like that, you know, is like the training that you had as a therapist similar to like some of these other types of backgrounds, like maybe someone in a different master's program or is there, you know, as kind of the general public, like looking at therapists, is that not something to really like take into account? That's a great question. Um, There are a couple different uh, licenses and degrees that you can look at. So there's Social work is sort of the, I would say, like the MBA of mental health. It's the broadest. Um, it covers the most. And the social, what distinguishes social work from sociology or psychology is social work is person in environment. Mm-hmm. So psychology is very internal. It's what am I thinking? What am I feeling? But it kind of stops there. And then sociology is like, how do people's behaviors create entire societies? And social work is like, yes, both, right? Like there's a person with internal thoughts and feelings and motivators, and they interact with other people. So they create societies and then they all then like Venn diagram over other people. So I can't speak to psychology because I don't know enough about how that program is run, mm-hmm. but then there's also a licensed mental health counselor, which is very similar to social work. Um, there are some nuances that are different, but I, I wouldn't say that you, if you were looking between the two, that you really needed to distinguish. Mm-hmm. Then there's a licensed marriage and family therapist, which would be more focused on family dynamics. Right. Um, but the, everybody and that would should... be more like, I feel like a lot of like religious like pastors and stuff oftentimes have 
like some sort of certificate to do like marriage counseling or something like that. Oh yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Um, I've seen that in the past. Yeah, yeah, that could definitely be true because yeah, that'd be a a lot of the people they'd be working with. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think there's also like pastoral counseling. Like I think there's stuff I'm just not even familiar with. Right. Um, But any good practitioner should be very clear in telling you who they do and don't work with. So like I work with millennial women who are working, have worked, are entering the workforce, meaning that like I don't really work with stay-at-home moms. Mm -hmm. They have a totally different set of needs that I'm just not an expert in. And it is part of my ethical obligation to say, I don't have an expertise in this, so I'm not going to pretend because that's that's totally unfair to you if you're going to come pay me to give you, you know, Mm -hmm. feedback. Um, You know, I... Don't I don't work with couples. Um, it's just personal preference. Um, mm-hmm. I, of course, work with a lot of women who are in relationships. Um, oh, and interestingly, this is something a lot of people don't know. If I'm seeing you as an individual, I cannot see you and your partner as couples because mm-hmm. I have already created an alliance with you. I could see you and your partner in a session like a couple of times if there was something you wanted to mm-hmm. talk about. But as a couples counselor, I the client is not you or your partner. The client is the relationship. And so a oh, lot of times, yeah, it's really interesting. And when you think about it that way, because you go in as this triad, right? And both mm-hmm. parties are like, well, well, the therapist agrees with me more. Yeah. And <laughs> it's not really conducive to yeah. your relationship to yeah. be thinking about it that way. Um, and so it's, it's a lot of work on the therapist end to make sure that you are not creating alliances um because you know inevitably you agree with one person more than the other right like it's usually pretty clear um oh and if i could put one psa out there for couples it would be do not wait until it's bad before you go go to couples counseling like on your first date like once you two have decided you're in a relationship like go to couples counseling because i have never had a couple sit in front of me and be like well this is our last resort and had them be able to do the work necessary mm-hmm. because mentally and emotionally, you can't use this One as an ultimatum. One or both ultimatum. of them is checked out, for sure. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So interesting. Um, just a quick note, Maddie, you can edit this later. I have to head out in about 10 minutes. Okay. So we can I don't start doing the our... rapid fire. Okay. Well, I do want to ask one quick question uh, as Jenny closes up. Um, and then, Jenny, I think we're definitely going to have to have you back because Wonderful. I can go so on about this stuff. for hours. <laughs> yeah. But just do you have a couple really great resources for millennial women who are looking to really, you know, dig into their, I guess, emotional and and mental health, uh, best life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be totally self-serving, um, I just wrote a book and, (laughs) um, and it's called forward and heels and it's about, you know, creating this life where you can have it all because you have to decide what all means to you, not to what other people decide for you. And so think about it. Like every time we've ever been ghosted by someone we're dating, we're like, well, you don't prioritize me. Well, correct. (laughs) People prioritize what matters. It's very simple. We give time and energy to the things that matter to us. So before you can figure out what your life has to look like, you have to figure out what matters to you. And so my book is really intended to be either like a standalone. I mean, it's a pretty easy read. I think it's like 88 pages. And it's really like, what is your value system? Like before we start looking at how you're going to implement these changes in your life, like slow down. What do you value? Because you'll find that either personally or professionally or both, where you're finding conflict 
is where your values are in conflict with someone else's or with how you have to spend your day. You know, the example I use is like, um, you know, let's say you really value like efficiency and effectiveness. You want to see results and you want it to be done with the least amount of effort possible. And the person who works above you really values consensus and like voices being heard. Well, those are both worthwhile values. But if this person above you needs every single person's opinion to be given during a meeting and you just want to get a general consensus and then move on to the next agenda item, you're going to be so frustrated by this person. And if that person's in a position of power over you, then you're going to be even more frustrated because you can't change it. So the book is, it's on Amazon. It's like you can get the ebook for like 99 cents or, you know, I think the paperback, Mm -hmm. some people like me really like the tactile. um, And they're just, you know, exercises and activities. Um, That's great. I would also say if you are looking for more um, in-person stuff, I've got some workshops coming up in the city, which will be like on my social media, um, on my website. in terms of finding a therapist, I would just start the holy grail is psychology today. Mm-hmm. Um, you can filter by almost anything, and then people write their own bios, and you can get a sense of someone's voice. Um, you know, they don't have a ton of space, but from there, there should be a website, there should be social mm-hmm. media, depending on, um, I, w- I would say, the age of the therapist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, but you know, it's kind of like let people tell you who they are and like really hear them when they mm-hmm. are telling you. Yeah. Very cool. Okay, love that. All well, right. I'm definitely going to check out your book, so I'm very excited. Yes. yes. All right. Very exciting. Uh, we're now going to ask you a series of, we're in the archery range, so we will ask you a series of rapid-fire questions. Um, answer whatever comes to your head first. If we say favorite book, it can be a favorite. It does not have to be the ultimate favorite. Okay. So, uh, Maddie, would you like to begin? Sure. Favorite book. Okay. Um, it's problematic, but Gone with the Wind. Oh, nice. It's wonderful. Right? Yeah. I read I, it I, so I many it. times. Yeah good uh favorite childhood snack Ooh, um chocolate covered potato chips oh interesting oh, yum <laughs> interesting i can't say i've ever had that we had like a little candy That's shop awesome. where you like scooped it by the pound oh, yeah it's so exciting so you have to try it maddie yes favorite movie hmm. also gone with the wind i know this is terrible <laughs> but like <laughs> it's all good it's a classic for a reason uh favorite tv show Ooh, um, ooh, this is a tough one. Um, I'm, oh God, so many. I watch so much TV. Um, I mean, I really like, what? Maybe a couple that you like. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking like, I mean, so I, I, this is so old school, but I loved The Wire. Mm. It, I mean, it was just like a fascinating. Oh, I'm sure from the social work perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously, Sex in the City. I'm going so old. Like, because now I watch, like, Bravo, and I'm not ashamed of it, but uh, I wouldn't yeah. necessarily say, like, the big, phase. high yeah. recommendation. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Whenever people ask me that, I'm like, lowbrow, The Bachelor, highbrow, yeah. Breaking Bad, or something like mm-hmm. that. Oh, you know what? Yeah. Mad Men. I will go back, mm-hmm. to, back and oh, rewatch Mad Men. Great. Yeah, and watch, like, the evolution, especially of the women over a decade. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, oh, is it my turn? Yes. Oh, favorite place uh, you visited? Ooh, um, I mean, ugh, these are all such basic answers, but Paris. I like Aww. it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Not basic. All right. 
Anything I think that's else, a great Maddie? place to end. No, before we depart, um, can you tell us where people can find you? Yeah, so it's Forward and Heels Everywhere. Um, oh, and I should explain that um, it actually comes from this this old cartoon um, of Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. Mm. And someone said, well, sure, he was great, but she had to do everything backwards and in high heels. And I just wanted to re re-look at this idea that it's backwards in heels, that we're trying to mimic men and, mm-hmm. you know, be power posing in the workplace and just being as masculine as they are to succeed and really just saying like, no, I want to go forward in my version of what femininity looks like for me, what feminism looks like for me, and that that's totally designed by me. Um, And so Facebook, Twitter, Instagram is all at Forward in Heels. Um, The website is forwardinheels.com. I think you can email me at Jenny at forwardinheels.com. I I try to make it as easy as possible. (laughs) Great. Love the consistency. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both. This was wonderful. Thank you. This was amazing. All right, campers, you know where to find us, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening. Camp Adulthood is hosted by Maddie Yergi, Resident Youth, and Shay Keats, Camp Adulthood. We are produced by Jenny Mayfield, and this episode was recorded in Maddie's living room. You can find us on social media at camp underscore adulthood. You can email us hello at campadulthood.com and you can visit us at campadulthood.com please also find on our website there are links to our patreon page where you can be a subscriber and there are many cool prizes thanks campers we hope that you enjoy your stay at camp adulthood